Hi guys and welcome. This is Jen Gata Siciliano, artist, memoir writer, bipolar psychiatric survivor, and your host of Not As Crazy As You Think podcast. The place that offers an alternative perspective on mental illness, highlighting creativity, non-conventional healing, and breaking on through to the other side. If you are ready for a new narrative on the mental realm that celebrates crazy and cool without penalty, then Not As Crazy As You Think is for you. I'm your host, Jen Gaeta Siciliano, and today we are very lucky to have Lynn Liao Butler, author of The Tiger Mom's Tale. And this is a very exciting thing because I happen to know Lynn. I think we gravitated to Link Link and Dale for the same reasons, Lynn, to find a small slice of heaven so we can squirrel away in nature and write books. Exactly. And so I already pre-ordered your book and oh. others can too. If you go to Lynn's website at lynnlaobutler.com, it's L-Y-N-L-I-A-O butler.com. And you can purchase her book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, IndieBound, Books a Million, Target, Apple, and Kobo. So let's just start. You were born in Taiwan and you moved to the States when you were seven. Where did you grow up? Um, like all over the United States. I think we landed in California first because my mom had sisters and brothers that, lived, that were living there at the time. So we started there and then we went to, I think, Georgia and then Illinois and then Pennsylvania and somehow landed in New York. Wow. Because we were just kind of like living with my mom's uh, siblings when we first came here. Um, so we weren't really moving here. We were visiting and then somehow we just stayed. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. So you had like a, you were in different schools all, all throughout I, the nation. Yeah, I think in um, fifth grade, I was in four different schools. <gasps> I think I went to four different schools and it's wow. a fifth or sixth grade. I can't remember. Yeah. Now, was that hard on so. you? I don't think so. Cause I was kind of like an easygoing kid. I was just like, you know, it didn't really phase me. I was just like, you know, made new friends wherever I went. Um, so it, it didn't really now thinking back, probably it should have phased me. <laughs> we were fine. We were like, you know, we were always surrounded by cousins and aunts and uncles. So. So then you came to Lake Lincoln, which is awesome because that's where I met you. And I'm very yeah. proud of you for doing what you did, being a accomplished author. Now your book's coming out next year and you fall into the genre of women's fiction and multicultural fiction. Um, this year at the Writers Digest conference, I actually saw you that day walking your dog. Yep. The Pulitzer Prize winner from 2016, Viet Thanh Nguyen, uh, he won it for fiction for his book, The Sympathizer. And he had said that growing up as a Vietnamese American, he felt none of the stories that were out there in the world were about me or people like me. And when they were about people like me, we had nothing to say. So when you were growing up, how did you feel the literary world represented or misrepresented the Asian community, comparing it to what you know about your own life and the life of your family? Like yet, were you inspired to tell an Asian narrative that was missing from the book market? Yeah, definitely. Um, I read a lot. Like when we when I first moved here, I didn't speak English at all. So I was seven and learning English. So my mom took us to the library and like we just fell in love with books. Like I read all the time, like walking, eating. Like, you know, my mom would have to take the book away from me at the table, but they were all about American kids, you know, or whatever age group I was reading who had blonde hair or, you know, Little House on the Prairie. It, it was, I didn't, we didn't have any books that had anything to do with us. And if they were, they were, you know, like 
like background characters or stereotypical family that eats, you know, chop suey, which I never <laughs> had before in my life. And so it was, you know, very white, I guess is the word. I, one of our family friends, Charles Yu, just, he just won the National Book Award for Best Fiction. Um, and his book called Interior Chinatown is like perfect, like stereotype of what it was like to grow up in Asia, how like people in America sees Asian people and stereotypes them like that they're mm-hmm. like background Asian guy number one or Asian guy who gets kicked in the face. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's really, you should read it. It's really funny. Like it's a funny take on the stereotypes, but at the heart of it, it's also a really moving story about family and immigration. And, and he's actually a family, a friend of a friend of the family that's we connected once because um, he's a Penguin Random House author. Oh. So when he found out I was, um, debuting next year he's been so helpful like you know wow he's gonna blurb the book and everything so he's great his book is amazing so he says it perfectly like we grew up not having you know books about us and when I pitched when my agent pitched my book to my editor she said in the I guess she's almost 30 years that she's been an editor at Berkeley which is an imprint of Penguin Random House she's never once gotten a submission from the point of view of a Taiwanese person. Wow. And that's, you know, that says a lot because there are a lot of Taiwanese people around. People just don't know it. Right. Um, so she was very excited to find one and I'm very excited to share it because Chinese, you know, we're lumped together with Chinese people and, you know, everybody thinks that it's all the same. We're also Taiwanese and there's like a whole culture and stuff. So I'm really excited for this to come out that I actually wrote a book that people are going to read. So with really a new angle. I mean, like you said, there's not that many Taiwanese characters out there. Right. And people, you know, the more people know about a group or, you know, a culture that they don't know about, the less the stereotypes will prevail. So I think right. it's really, you know, right, really important in this, especially this year, how, you know, diversity and everything is starting to come into play. You finally did get the call. You know, how did that all feel? Yeah, I mean, I have to say when I first, I didn't start writing until 2015. So, you know, I've been many things in my life. I've always loved to read, but I've never taken a writing course. I've never had a dream to be a writer. I just always read a lot. But when I moved here to the lake from New York City, my friends in the city are like, oh, what are you doing in the country? I'm like, it's not the country. It's only an hour or something north of New York City. But, you know, with a lake and, you know, they think we're living in the middle of nowhere. So I started a blog to update people. It was just for my family and friends in around the country in New York. And, you know, they were telling little stories about my life. And that eventually, like for some reason, it just one day, I think it was like January 1st, 2015, I woke up and said, I'm going to write this into a book. And then I sat down and I wrote a book. It took me six months and June of 2015, I'm like, I'm going to query this book. Nobody had ever read it. Not one single person <laughs> ever read it. I've never taken a course. And I, you know, Googled how to, how to find a literary agent. And I was like, I'm going to get picked up so fast and, you know, get it printed. And it was so, I was so wrong. So I <laughs> sent out this query letter that was like cringeworthy. I think I said something like, I hope it makes you sweat or, you know, I hope it makes your heart pound and, you know, all this like crazy things. Um <sighs> And I actually got five requests from that, which is kind of now that I think about it, when I, the manuscript I sent them was so, it was so much telling so much, like all the things they tell you not to do. Yeah. Yeah. And then I realized that that's not how you write a book. You need, you know, critique partners, you need beta readers, you need people um, to help you and you need to grow. So I started, you know, researching online. I joined um, two critique groups, one in New York city, one up here in the Hudson Valley. I, 
finally got on Twitter, which I resist. I didn't know what a twit. I, I thought they were called twits. I was like, why do we twit? What's the point of this? I resisted, but there's a huge writing com community on Twitter. And because of Twitter, I connected with other people that are writing in the same genre. And I, my critique partner is actually in uh, Germany. Wow. But we connected and we've been exchanging, you know, books and helping each other. And I joined as many contests as I could, like query submissions, like anything I could get my hand on, like contests for, you know, un unpublished writers. And so I just learned a lot and wrote a second book. And wow. I thought this book was great. I was like, this is it. This is the book. And I got like 15 requests from agents. So I was really excited. But then the rejections kept coming in and coming in. And um, I was like, that's it. I give up. And this is like 2000, I think, 17 or something. But then something happened. And I, I just remember thinking, I kept thinking about that first book. And I'm like, I know there's a way to make it better hmm. now that I know more and I've learned more. So one day I sat down and just like completely re-outlined it. And I wrote the story I wanted to tell. Mm. And I was smart. I actually researched the agents this time because before I was just kind of submitting to anybody and everybody. Mm -hmm. I looked at their request rate. I also looked at what they sold and if it's to imprints that I wanted. And my mm -hmm. dream imprint was Berkeley. Really? So that company has sold a lot to Berkeley. So I knew I wanted to be with Lucan. So January of 2019, I was at the vet with my dog. Pino, the one that just passed away. Mm. I was holding her in my hands and I get this email say, I would like a phone call with you. And I literally almost dropped Pino. Mm. <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, this is it. This is it. So I emailed her back. We set a time for a Friday for the call. And I have to say 10 minutes into the phone call, I still didn't know she was going to um, offer representation. Wow. I could not tell. I was like, is she just telling me she likes my work? And finally, like 15 minutes in, she said, I am going to be offering representation, but I just want to make sure you're okay with this. I was like, oh my God. Oh my gosh. So yeah, that was a great, I was sitting right there on the couch over there and I was just like, oh, oh my God. So she ended, did she end up being everything that you needed? For oh, she is my agent? absolute perfect agent. Oh, it's amazing because I can't believe that you just recent, I mean, you know, listen, it's 2020, but it, it, you've only been writing for, Right. Five, years, five years but right. what it really says is that you can anybody can be whatever they want it's just a matter of like when the calling comes and right. the work is required if you're willing what? and interested that's it that's what takes you there I think in publishing a lot of it is also just sheer stubbornness not to yeah. give up because it doesn't matter how good of a writer you are how talented you are if you don't hit the right agent at the right time or the right, right. publisher at the right time and, you know, the publishing climate is always changing, depends on mm -hmm. what's going on in the world, you know, what stories have been published. If you don't get catch them at the right time, they're not going to pick up your book. Right. Because my book could have come out like maybe, you know, two years ago, that she could have gotten the thing. And at that time, she's not looking for this and she would have passed it. Right. So a lot of it is just like having that stubborn, like, I'm not going to give up, like, or, you know, you give up, stop writing for a while and then come back to it if you really love it, mm -hmm. because it really, like if you think about the statistics, it's so almost impossible, first of all, to get an agent. Mm -hmm. And second of all, to get to get picked up by a publisher because of the odds and like the, you know, the steps that you need to get through. So I think my biggest thing was that I have such a hard head and I just like, <laughs> you know, with, I mean, I had, I literally got hundreds and hundreds of rejections, like not just a little bit, like hundreds. <laughs> See, I get inspired by you. I'm 
in the other direction where I'll do like one submission. I'll put all my effort into this one submission and then I'll be like waiting, waiting. I give them like a full six weeks, you know what I mean? Right, I know. Or even work on the next. And I'm thinking this is where I've gone wrong because I haven't worked with the numbers game. This is what you, well, this is what you do. You need to send out five to 10 queries out at the same time. Okay. And then for every rejection you get, send out another one. Another one. Because so there should it, be in circulation at least five exactly. to 10. Because it takes so long for um, some agents take three months, three to six months to read your query. So if you're mm. waiting around, you're going to be doing this for a long time. So, yeah. and the best part of this is that you're still in control because if you get the rejection, you know what, that wasn't the right person, go to the next one. There's hundreds of agents out there. So right. that way you always have queries out there and feelers. And then you can also learn, like if they give you feedback, like, oh, okay, that wasn't working. So with the next one, I'll change it. And don't query all your um, dream agents all, all at once. I would right. start with some like mid to lower on your list. Right. And then, you know, as you start to get requests, then start feeding in some of the dream ones and, you know, working on it. But you have to always, I, I, we call it rage querying. Hmm. Like when some somebody says every time she gets a rejection, she'll just rage query like five to ten other uh, agents. Be like, you know, so what? You can reject me. I'll find my you know agents. So I mean, listen, everyone goes through this, but there's that sense of you take it so personally oh, as yeah. a writer. You get your um, confidence moving, and the momentum takes you, and then all of a sudden you have either a rejection or uh, you know you come up against an obstacle, and it's enough to have you just shut yeah. down. Right. I, I mean, I did it many times. Like, I mean, I can't tell you how many times, like when a dream agent, I would get that rejection. I was like, Oh, that's it. <laughs> I'm, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. I, my poor husband, poor Jim has been through so much. Because <laughs> like my moods depended on if I got a rejection or a request. Oh, I know. <laughs> and he's just like, okay. So that's why when we moved here, he gave me this room as my sewing writing nice. room so that I could just go in and like, you know, so this is my room. <laughs> Good things to know and to be reminded of for all people who want to become an author. And you've always helped me stay there. And I really feel lucky to know someone like you. First of all, you're a wonderful person, but also you have achieved something that's so difficult to achieve. Uh, yeah. And you're so encouraging to other people who have right. that dream still. And I think that's really important for many people because whether the odds are there in your favor or not, it's really true. It's what you stick with. It's the perseverance. Right. So many people are not necessarily the best in their fields, but they suck at it, right. you know? Right. right. Exactly. The reason why I want to give um, passes forward is because when I was in the trenches and you know, discouraged. It's the authors that were ahead of me that the published authors, the ones, they're the ones that gave me the encouragement, the feedback, the, you know, I'm here if you need, you know, anything I can do to support you. They're the ones that got me to where I am now. So that's why I'm trying to pay it forward because without those people, I wouldn't, I don't think I would be sitting here right now. So that's awesome. Yeah. Well, again, congratulations, because Thank I know you. really it's, it's a wonderful achievement. It really is. I know the day that it happens for me, I'm going to be forget about it. I'll yeah. <laughs> I hope I don't do anything bad, but you know, I, I mean, I want to do good things, but I'll right. be so excited. Exactly. So let's get into how you dip into your own creativity. Okay. I know you, you have done many, many things when it comes to being creative. 
I know that you have been a concert pianist, a professional ballet and modern dancer, all these different things. Tell me, are there any particular tools that you use when you're trying to get into the creative uh, state? And, you know, do you pull from all these other creative you yes. know, areas that that you have? Definitely. I mean, I all my ideas come from life. So my second book, the first line of my second book says she was on the phone with her husband when he died. And that came from my husband's a, a FDNY fireman. He came home one day and told me how they were on a call in Queens. And this woman was on the phone with her husband and she gets run over by like a Pepsi truck or something and decapitated. I mean, it was really gory, oh but like she was on the phone with her husband. So her husband heard it all happen. And I was like, can you imagine like being on the phone with your husband and you heard them die? And that inspired the opening scene for my second book. So everything in my life, they, they, they are just saying that says, um, be careful of being friends with the writer. You never know if you're going to end up in one of their stories because <laughs> no. everything in my book is like taken from, um, you know, life. And so I don't, I'm not one of those people. I don't get writer's block because I don't sit down to write unless I know what I want to write. Wow. So a lot of people think that to be a writer, you have to sit down and get so many number of words in at a time. And that if you don't write anything, then, you know, you have writer's block and you're stuck. I do so much other stuff. Like, as you know, I'm a yoga fitness instructor. I mm -hmm. sew purses mm -hmm. while I'm teaching, while I'm sewing, I'm always thinking about the story and um, how I can manipulate it and to get to know the characters better. Like I, I live in, inside their head, like I write, become them. So, and that's how, why I say I've talked to imaginary people because I am talking to them and trying to figure out their personalities, what, what they do for a job. And so I'm, while I'm doing life, you know, homeschooling my child, like that craziness, it's all, I, I call it like a percolating in my brain mm. so that I work out scenes in my head so that when I do have the time to sit down, the words just come out because I've already thought about them so much mm -hmm. that I can get something down. Um, right. Because if I just sit down every day and try to write, I probably will be staring at the lake, you know, staring right. outside, playing with my dog. So I don't make myself write. There are days that, I mean, there are weeks go by. I don't write a single word, mm -hmm. but it's, I'm thinking about it. It's and, always you know, I'll, there. I'll take notes and be like, oh, that, that's a great idea. I'll be in the bathtub and like, oh my God, I just, know, I know how to fix this now. And I'll <laughs> jump out and, you know, make a note. So that's how I avoid writer's block. And that's where I get, and everything I see in life, like I was at a wedding and this uh, woman gets up and she's dancing with this other woman. I was like, they're so cute. And I find out that it was the best man's mother who had, after 30 years of marriage, had come out of the closet also. Well, she didn't know she was gay or um, bisexual. And she divorced the father and moved and married and moved in with this woman. And it was the first time that the family was really getting to know her. And the whole family di dynamic wow. was so interesting to me that I borrowed their story and used it in my first, the tiger mom's tale. Ah. So this happens to my um, MC, my main character. So it's like, you never know what's going to end up in, in a book. So the book, your main, the main book that's coming out next right. year and it's coming out July 6, 2021. As you said, you have a major traditional player, and the tagline is, when an American woman inherits the wealth of her Taiwanese family, she travels to confront them about their betrayals of the past. It's really interesting because I want to bring this up again. The main character is Lexa Thomas. Mm -hmm. She grew up in a family of blondes, but she never felt white enough or Asian enough. Now, we, I, I get generally what that means, but what does it mean for someone who is dealing with it in a much more personal way? 
So she is actually half white and half Taiwanese. Um, and so her mother, before she got married to her stepfather, had an affair with a Taiwanese man. So Lexa is half Taiwanese, but her mom is blonde. And then um. she, her mom marries a blonde man who becomes her stepfather. And they have a, a daughter, mm. two of them, who is also blonde. So she grew up in her American family, who their entire family is blonde. She's the only black-haired Asian person. Mm -hmm. And her father, her birth father is in Taiwan. So I, the reason why I did that was because even though I was, I'm 100% Taiwanese, I, having been born over there and then growing up here, I always felt split in two. Like there's a Taiwanese me and then the American me. And I never knew which one was the real me. Like I didn't really belong because when we go back to Taiwan, they're like, oh, there's the American cousins. And then in America, everybody's like, oh, you're so Asian. You're, you're not, you're not American. You're whatever. So I've always felt that divide of not being white enough and not being Asian enough. And so I was like, what would it be like to be a woman who looks Asian on the outside, but is American on the inside or brought up American? Mm -hmm. And that's where Alexa came from. Wow. So, and I don't know much about that second book. Now, what's the title of that? And what's that about? Right now, the t working title is um, Red Thread of Secrets. Um, and it's actually about, it's actually based on Jim and my adoption of Lakin. So it's nice. based on our international adoption of our son. The story, of, of course, is not our story. I mean, the, the husband dies in the first chapter and like, you know, and then she still has to go to um, China and adopt a child by herself. And then she it's it's not our story at all, but it was inspired by the adoption process. And right. so it's about found family, like, you know, um, again, somebody searching for their identity or their family and how family is um, it's not just a nuclear, you know, like a mom, dad, kid that you can have a family, even if you're not related and didn't get birth to. Right. So, yeah. And that's another story, again, that needs to be told. Right. And so that that, that story has a lot of agents have told me it has sat. I've actually had agents re reach out to me on Twitter when they saw that my book is coming out and they remember that second book that they requested. Wow. And said how powerful that story was to them. They, it just wasn't written right and needed a lot of work. And then my agent and I figured out how to do it. So, right. um, so they were really excited that that book is getting published. All right. You, you mentioned talking to imaginary characters, which I always, I find to be fascinating because sometimes when I had gotten into that mode, right. a lot of people would misinterpret that. It would get me into trouble, but it's so cool because you're just like, okay, well, this is what I do. And it's, it seems to be taken as normal by your husband and, and people in your life. And are, do you have any other eccentric actions you may find yourself doing as a writer to access your deepest muse? Because writers can be strange. No, we are. We're just strange, right? We are. I mean, I, I like I said, half the time I'm talking to myself. I mean, I literally walk around talking to myself. I love this. I think the yoga and the teaching class really helps me because writing you're sitting down you're solitary whatever I then if I'm getting frustrated I can go teach a class torture other people like I mean like you know make them sweat make them burn make them do hold a pose and then I feel better <laughs> so <laughs> it clears my mind it's and then so for me the balance of the physical activity that I do with the writing is so it's so important like if I didn't have that I think I don't think I could write half as good I think just the action of getting out there and, you know, doing something physical and sweating and then coming back really helps me to focus. And, yeah. and like I said, a, a lot of my ideas come from the bathtub. I go into the bathtub with a glass of wine, 
And I sit there and like, I, I've gotten the best ideas in the bathtub. So many people say that, whether it be the shower, the toilet, the bathtub. Right, exactly. The bathtub. So it's, mm-hmm. it, I sit there and I think up things. Um, and when I'm sewing for my Etsy shop, like as I'm sewing, the most bizarre thoughts come to me. And yeah. I think it's, it's the imagination working. Like if you don't, right. if you're imagine, like if you're not feeding your imagination, you're not able to come up with how do you get these characters out of these predicaments that you put them in. Don Mayer, he was from the Writers Conference. He wrote this. He said this, and I thought it was so funny. It's not normal to write eighty thousand words sitting alone in a room. We all need therapy. We're doing something that's not normal. So, what's your response to that? Yeah, I totally agree. It's that you should not, and that's what I did. The first book, the very, very first book I wrote, I wrote eighty thousand words sitting in a room by myself. Right. That did not work because obviously it was not good. So, I actually before the pandemic. I used to go out to like bookstores, coffee houses, whatever, and write there because I couldn't sit still in my house by myself and write. You know, you have to go out there. You have to talk to people. You have to experience life. Like even just sitting in a coffee store, sometimes, you know, thoughts will come to you. And I, I do write a lot at home. And if I, when I'm writing at home, my dogs are on top of me. It's like, <laughs> you know, there's always something going on. But yeah, I totally agree. We are not normal. And <laughs> you can't, you can't make yourself you're not going to write a good book if you do it all by yourself. Yeah. You know, in a, in a cave, right. You need to be out there, whether it's interacting on Twitter with other writers Mm -hmm. or finding a critique group or talk like the critique group. I didn't tell anybody else writing. I don't think I told anybody until I I think I told you, but but you were one of the few because we were talking about it, but nobody, none of my close friends knew I was writing. I used to lie to them be like, Oh, when I have to go to my meetings on Saturday, I was like, Oh, I have to go to the city uh, for work. (laughs) And, so, you know, like I was lying. I was like, that was my thing. Like, I thought it was my shameful secret. Like I was having oh an affair, except uh, it was an affair with my computer. Yeah, yeah. My husband knew just because if I didn't tell him, he'd be like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> you, know, you need to tell the people you live right. with. Absolutely. Right. So that, I think my husband um, and my mom and dad, and that was it. <laughs> I, as a nonfiction writer, and I tend to, I tend to lean inside my imagination a lot in my writing. So it's almost like I come up with these worlds inside my mind. And often it's inside situations like, you know, an institution where I only have the ability to go inside my mind. So inside the text, it looks like there's a world building situation, but it's limited because I am always speaking about the nonfiction environment, you know, what it actually is. And as a nonfiction writer, you have to really be honest, as honest as you possibly can be with fiction writing. What's so intriguing is that you guys could really come up with ever anything that you want. I mean, like it could be fantasy. It could be, you know, anything that you could come up with. Yeah. So I pull from my, a lot from my life, but if you read my book, you're, you're not going to be like, that's Lynn because, you know, obviously I'm not half white and my birth father is not living in Taiwan while I'm over here. And then he gets killed and, you know, like all this stuff. So um, you'll find little bits and pieces of me, if you know me. So what inspirations have you had for your work since it's such a big range of things that you discuss, you know, whether other writers or yes. you're a musician where they're musicians other creative people like who who most inspires you i don't know if you heard the author leah moriarty she's the one that wrote big little lies that they made into an hbo movie that's uh, really big like the series um she is the reason why i'm a writer oh and i found her books and they just spoke to me like i felt like she's an australian writer so her books are all based in australia but the themes that she talked about were so like um, universal that I felt mm-hmm. like she understood. I'm like, oh my gosh, she totally gets it. She understood. 
And I was like, I want to write books like this. I want to write where even though I'm Asian, someone who's white or black or whatever can read it and be like, I totally get what she's where she's coming from. I Mm -hmm. identify with her. She is my biggest inspiration. And if I ever meet her, I'll be like fangirly. (laughs) I probably won't ever meet her since she's in Australia, but well, we're putting it out there. You never know. Well, that's the reason why I wanted to be published at Berkeley because she was with um, Pamela Dorman, which is a, imp- I think it's also associated with um, Penguin, but there, her paperback is came out in Berkeley. So the first books I read of her were printed by Berkeley. So when I saw that, I, I knew I was like, "This is if I ever get published, this is the imprint I want to be published." Wow! With. And so for the fact that I actually got this offer from Berkeley is like that's a golden more than a dream come true it's wow. like yeah so see it's possible people yes. dreams can come true it does and you don't think uh, you know you think it's not it's not but it does so you got to keep at it right yep. no matter mm-hmm. what right. so let's get to this third book because you know i'm very interested in yes it's called one uh, pronounce that for me please Ka- one kawaii night for now the okay. kawaii yep and you say, um, it, again, this is your third book, which, again, is just amazing. I mean, to think that you've only been doing this for like a good, strong five years and right. you already got three done. I mean, I mean you're like a powerhouse. Um, <laughs> and it's really, of course, interesting to me because it deals with mental illness. And that's oh. like one of the main things. Well, the main thing that we discuss here right. at um, Not As Crazy As You Think within the context of everything else. Right. Um, right. One of the things that, of course, we push is the creativity. Right. situation. So that's most important um, in, in hearing from you. But let's talk a little bit about what happens with this book. There's a main character, Annie Lynn. She lost her dance company and studio she built, um, was forced to declare bankruptcy and lost her only beloved dog, but also her mother. But then she retreats into her mind and suffers very deep depression, ends up neglecting her young son and, and husband. He's a firefighter. A that's firefighter. also similar exactly. to you. Yep. So um, what other are, are some of these other experiences similar? Did you have any bouts with mental illness? Yeah. So this book is actually based on my life in 2013. So that was the year I moved to the lake. Um, we moved, mm-hmm. I think, December of 2012. And then 2013 was like the worst year of my life. Like I literally mm-hmm. I um, I got pregnant that year. I, I was pregnant three times that year. <laughs> Um, and I have three miscarriages, but two of them ended up with like um, blood clots, like the size of a grapefruit. And then they had to go into surgery and then it caused starring and then I had to have surgery. And then I also um, lost the gym that I had for 10 years through, you know, it's like, I mean, it was just a lot of stuff going on. It was like health yes. issues, the loss of, um, we thought we were going to start a family, my livelihood. I had no job. I was like, you know, lost my, my company. So yeah. it's based. So this is probably the most personal um, that all this happened. Um, so I didn't lose my dog. I didn't lose my mother or whatever, but I was just using that as a thing. Um, because, you know, even people who think they don't have mental problems or mental issues do like when something happens, the way we deal with it is, you know, tells a lot about, so I did, I was very depressed. I was very like, you know, I was on the, I was, you know, I think suicidal in thought, wow. not in action. Like I would never right. do anything, but in thought, I was like, I would stare at the lake. I wish I was disappear. You know, mm. like I was like, they don't need me. I don't need to be here. Mm. So it was a very dark time. And um, I come from, uh, you know, a Taiwanese family where mental illness is not talked about. Mm. Like I've found out only as an adult that I had some cousins in over in Taiwan who, try to commit suicide and mm-hmm. were deeply depressed and, you know, 
aunts, uncles, whatever this, but they hide it. They don't talk about it. It's, it's like, oh, she was just not um, doing well or at school right. or something. Even on the, in here in the United States, I have cousins who have, you know, ish, like we all have something, but like right. the family tries, like, it's like a shameful secret. So, but they were like, don't tell them that we told you. I'm like, why? It should be addressed. Like somebody needs to help, you know, whatever. And it's like, no, don't tell your aunt that I told you, you know, or, you know, don't, nobody's supposed to know about this. But, and to me, I was like, well, if you don't talk about it, it's not going to get better. You can't hide it. And so in this book, her, you know, she suffers for four years and we open with her moving, they move to Hawaii to start over. And I think I said, like, what happens if mental illness is not treated? I think that's the wrong word. I think I should have said acknowledged because her uh, father yeah. does acknowledge it. And but he thinks you can heal everything with herbal supplements and Eastern medicine. Like he's like, no, you know, you need you're just your chi is bad. Your you know, your life spirit, whatever is not right. And he wants to fix it with herbs and acupuncture mm-hmm. and Tai Chi and Qigong and all this stuff where she's being told that, no, if you go talk to a psychiatrist, you're crazy. You don't need to call, talk to a therapist. It's all in your mind. You just need to buck up, get stronger. Right. Um, like, you know, you don't need to talk to anybody. If you talk to anybody, you're weak, you're not strong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she resists, you know, over and over again. But then she meets this woman who does have a real mental illness problem. Mm-hmm. And she's also does not get help. And then she sees what happens as this woman's life unravels right, right in front of her. And she realizes that it's okay to acknowledge it. And right. so it's a very deep, dark storyline, but it's also told a lot with a lot of humor and like, so it's not like a depressing story. Well, I, you know, I embrace anything that has this conversation because, you know, one of the things that I, we push here at Not As Crazy As You Think is that much of the mental distress that most people have usually comes from something. Right outside of themselves. Right. And one of the reasons why there is a lot of stigma and just recently it's lifted only a little bit in America. I mean, I've been under stigma since I was 22. Right. So, but it's been so severe over the the course of my life because as you say people say, well, it's either, you know, they're the ones with mental illness or right. I'm fine and, right. and that's where the problem is because nobody wants to discuss it, but since COVID it looks like mental distress is more normal than not all of right. a sudden, you know, and, and as you say, these things are common in the Asian community, but Americans just generally across the board, you know, they're just recently right. coming forward and talking about it. And the thing is, if there was no shame, right, people would talk about it a lot more. Right. And I like that's what I think is is interesting because of covid there is a lot less shame because we're all we can all point to something very specifically environmental right right and say we are all affected by this let's stop we don't have to shame each other right so it's a new environment which i feel excited about you know how you say that sometimes you you don't know when the the publisher is going to want that kind of a book but i feel like well maybe now you know the mental illness books will be open right right and that and that's another thing that I said before that this might be the right time for you to yeah. be getting it out there because like you said things that happen in life really affect what we read and what they pick up and right so and I'll go further as to say because I always discuss this this is always a big thing for me that one of the things with mental illness treatment is all around the psychiatric biomedical model which right. says it's in you it's in your genetics it's in your mm-hmm. biology it's in 
people who are labeled with the worst of mental illnesses that they say are genetic, mm-hmm. there was never any kind of test given to me about my genes, you know, and I've been told this for two and a half decades. So it's very interesting because, you know, we all and families have predispositions. Right. Those are the things that are inherited. Right. You know what I mean? Like, how do you and your family deal with this kind of thing? Usually it has to do with characteristics inside, you know, uh, culture or, you know, inside uh, mannerisms inside families. Like, how do you rise above things or do you have trouble? I know in my family, there's a lot of drug addiction when stuff happens. Right. That's how they deal with it. Some people deal or some families deal with eating disorders, some deal mm-hmm. with, you know, whatever it is. So I think that there's that sense of, yeah, let's find out where our families, you know, have a little weakness, but we can get to it in terms of healing. Right. The truth of it is there has to be a balance. Right. And that's what I hope to do with, you know, these conversations on this podcast, because if, you, if you're struggling, going to a therapist is the right, re- is the right. right thing. It's the solution. Right. It's there for us. And I always end up saying, well, you don't need a psychiatrist because right. they're the ones who give you meds. Right. But listen, to our listeners, if you need meds, you need meds for a little right. while. I'm just the proactive get off the meds if you right. can. Right. Well, if you can find another way to deal yes, with it. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why I think my life and now is so much more balanced um, mentally, physically, emotionally, because I was not in this place like five years ago. Right. You know, like um, I finally figured out a really nice balance between like working out, teaching, because if I didn't teach, I don't know if I would get off my butt and work out. So that is really clears ahead. The whole sewing for me is like meditation. So I can't meditate because I'm too hyper, but sewing for me is like meditation. Like it's just like mindless work where I can, you know, just let myself go and be me and just do it. And then the whole writing is also therapy for me because I get out things that like this third book, all those bad things that happened to me in 2013, I'm pouring it all out right now into this book. Mm -hmm. It's not my story that I'm writing really. It's just based on what happened, but I can now make it however I want to happen. Yes. I've been writing my whole life, but always memoir style writing. Or creative nonfiction, right? Right. Creative nonfiction. Right. Right. So you know, it's so it's very interesting, but I don't know, maybe I, I, I might have to go into this fiction writing. I think you should because it's really yeah. good therapy because you get this yeah. stuff out, all that crazy thoughts yes. that you have. You can you can give them to your characters. They right. can kill people off. Like I kill people, <laughs> you know, like somebody gets mad, they're going to spash somebody. And there's like scenes where I'm like, you know, men treat me like some sort of subservient Asian, you know, like they're like, oh, she's Asian. So she must be right. so, you know, thought, and like I have them throwing wine in their face and like Kung Fu kick them down. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so yeah, you should try it. It's really good therapy. I really think this writing has helped me so much. <laughs> it's really finding a balance. Right. It really is. You need to find your own balance because some, for some people, maybe they need more of one thing or less of one thing, whatever. For me, it's the physical, mental, and, you know, emotional, like all that stuff. If I don't get it in, you know, whatever. And there are days where I will sink back into that, you know, that depressive where like, I don't want to be here anymore. I just want to disappear. That that was mm. the mantra I used to say. I just want to disappear, mm. you know, and it's, that's not really healthy, but I finally got myself out of it. And I realized that it's really finding your own balance and each person is different. It's just a matter of finding things that make you feel better and make you, you know, it has, you have to do something physical. You have to do something cleansing, whether yes. it's for me, it's sewing. Like that was the meditative, right. like, you know, um, so I have an Etsy store, but I don't do it for the money. I do it for the 
creative, right. mindless work, yes. which calms me down at the end. It's like I sew every night before bed. Because yeah. for me, that's how I come off the, the stress of whatever happened that day. You are, you are an example of someone who could come out of a very bad situation and looking at a difficult disappointment and, you know, rising above it. And I think that that's, that gives everyone hope. That's why I want to write this book, because I feel like it's important to like, even though I think my tagline for that book is someone else's life always looks better from the outside. Mm -hmm. Um, Because like, you know, thinks people can think that you look fine and everything's fine, but really you're, you know, suffering inside and you're like, beating yourself up over something. And that's what my main character is going through. And for her, it takes like this big thing, you know, for her to realize that she doesn't need to suffer alone, but hopefully we don't need that big. Right. Right. And isn't that, that really is the advice because, you know, if we learn how to accept these things as they come along and not self shame, you know, and start seeing it as, oh my gosh, like we could all just be so much more compassionate towards each other. And these things can be a little bit more easier to get through. Yeah. Where, how how does one get your book most easily right now? Because I know it's on pre-orders. Yeah. I mean, if you just Google the Tiger Mom's Tale, it'll pop up, show up. Tiger Mom's Tale. Yep. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much for having me. Gosh. Thank you, Lynn. <laughs> You're the best. Thanks for listening to Not As Crazy As You Think. And don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel. And remember, mental health is attainable for anyone, especially those labeled with mental illness. Until next time, peace out.